Alright, what's going on everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Before we start into today's episode, I have a quick question for you. Raise your hand if you are listening and you are a founder or you are a founder type or working on side projects. Now, if you're if you're driving, please don't raise your hand. But if you're thinking that's me, chances are you might have a co-founder and in today's world, everything's remote. And this is unfortunate for founding teams because teams work fastest when they're together, right? When you're starting something new from scratch, being in the same room has a magical kind of feeling to it. And when we're all remote, you don't really get the same thing. Well, what if I told you there's a way to get that same output, right? Get that same feeling while being remote. And luckily there is. Uh, our sponsor for the next couple of weeks for Forward Thinking Founders is Sidekick. And Sidekick is an always-on display that sits next to you, next to your computer. It allows you to work right next to your co-founder like you were in the same room. This eliminates most of the problems that you kind of get when founding a startup remotely. And you're able to move faster and, and, and kind of get stuff done in a much more efficient way like you could with if you were in the same room. And luckily, because you're a listener of Forward Thinking Founders, you get a big discount on on Sidekick devices. If you go to sidekick.video slash FTF, you get $30 off. The market rate is $50 per device. As a listener of this podcast, it is $20 per device. $30 off total per device. So go to sidekick.video slash FTF, get your devices, and get you and your co-founders working together like you're in the same room, even if you're remote. Hope you enjoy it. What is going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I am very grateful to have your attention, at least for the next 15 minutes of this episode. Forward Thinking Founders is a podcast where I interview pre-seed and seed stage founders about their products, what they want to build into the world, and why. We dive into how they spend their time, what's their vision, what's the origin of stories, all these things, so you can learn all about what's coming tomorrow. Because these companies haven't hit critical scale yet. Most of them haven't hit product market fit. These are just early stage companies, and the big question is, what can this be? And in this podcast, we bring that out. So with that, I really hope you enjoy your time listening to today's episode. And I've already done 200 plus, so if you like this one, listen to some of the other ones, like with Imadi Kuhn, Austin Allred, Leah Culver. We have great interviews, so check it out. Enjoy the repository, and for now, let's get into today's episode. Here we go. All right. How is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Today, we're talking with Jad Esper. Jad is someone that I met on the internet couple of weeks ago and we decided to talk about trends in tech on this podcast and we're meeting for the first time today so jad welcome to the show how's it going hey going good yeah um i'm excited for our conversation yeah me too i i was excited because you right before we started recording you're like oh i'm in kind of into consumer tech and i'm like i'm like i'm like a consumer tech junkie right now like i am just looking at all the spaces in you know, you, anyone could invest in and like, I'm just inherently interested in everything consumer. So let's just kind of start there. I'm on a very high level. Then we can kind of like bounce around, however totally. we around. Yeah. Um, what, what about consumer tech is interesting to you and like, what is going on in consumer tech today that is um, making you think? Yeah. So, I mean, consumer is consumer internet specifically is such an interesting space because it's kind of like art or film or music, it's a cultural asset. It's something that, you know, you really need to understand culture in order to build in, you need to understand people in order to build in. 
Um, and there's this academic, his name is Duncan Watts. He's a professor at Columbia, and he talks about the unpredictability of cultural markets, how it's super difficult to predict the success of a song, of a film, of art. And I think it also applies to consumer internet, the consumer apps and consumer platforms. Um, and I think that unpredictability is really interesting. It's a very irrational choice for founders to build companies in this space, but it's also probably the most exciting. And uh, a lot of investors will talk about sort of, you know, consumer internet um, companies being earthquakes. You're either like, it's like amazing and it breaks the internet or it sort of fails. Um, and so that's why I think it's interesting. It's just such, such a fascinating space to wrap your head around. And right now, I'm seeing this on Twitter, like right now, it is the kind of the best time to build a consumer company in, in, in a little bit. And I definitely want your take on this because like COVID kind of threw a wrench in like everyone's plans. It's like everything's changed. What a great time to start a company. How, how have you, like, what have you seen since COVID hit? And like, what are some, like, I'd love to kind of dive in. What are some consumer apps that they don't have to be big or small, but just like what's interesting? What, what are the types that are being built? Which ones mm. do you think are overhyped? They're just like, tell me like what's going on in the market that's interesting to you. Totally. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I think whenever there's this big change in how the world operates or like how people behave, it creates space in consumer world for things to happen. Um, I think the lack of, um, you know, physical contact and the need for connection um, that we inherently have is creating spaces online, um, unlike what, we've, what we saw before kind of COVID. Um, and there's a number of platforms, I think social is going through, it's kind of, you know, it's peaking again, uh, which is exciting. Um, and not to, dwell, not to kind of like, um, you know, focus specifically on a specific app or platform, but I think what's really interesting to me is this idea of, um, kind of spaces online that are more focused on really curated experiences. Um, you know, I'm kind of seeing this trend around people getting a bit tired with the power structures in play today. The fact that we're sort of at the chokehold of the algorithm and editorial teams and incentives are misaligned with creators and the most, you know, valuable contributors on those platforms, um, you know, us, the users. Um, and this transition to kind of platforms that are much that are more focused on the individual and, and the creator. Um, and um, yeah, that's kind of a thing I'm really excited about. So that's kind of the, the there's two, two things that I'm excited about. One is what you just talked about, which is the creator world. And like, how do people mm -hmm. make money online? And it's the, it's the move from like, institution power to individual power and like that that's a whole there's like kind of that bucket <laughs> excuse me that was, probably didn't sound great but we're gonna keep it in <laughs> um uh, there's there's that bucket and then there is this um it's kind of like this audio bucket uh which is another you know you got chalk and clubhouse and road trip and tons of others i'm probably not even cool enough to know about yet so that's like two two buckets right there. So this future mm. of work creator, there's like audio as a format. Is there any other mm. um, kind of high level buckets you would add into consumer waves right now of like kind of you're seeing some real activity in a generally same category? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think audio is definitely a big one. Kind of creator focused ecosystems and creator focused platforms are another one specifically around 
you know, the individual building niche audiences and monetizing them uh, rather than, you know, ads backed platforms, the like of Substacks and the tailwinds that that's causing. Um, but I think another big one is also just, you know, very, very specific vertical um, social networks. So, you know, like a social network that's specifically focused on pregnant women or, um, you know, um, mother, expectant mothers, um, you know, vertical, net, vertical social networks that are specifically focused on one game um, and, you know, nurture that specific community. I think that's a really interesting one. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about unbundling subreddits and focusing specifically on them and each one of them are, can potentially be a big enough platform. Um, so I think that's a really interesting kind of move. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff as well about kind of empowering the curator. So the individual that's not necessarily creating content, but that's curating content, that's selecting content, perhaps adding their commentary to it. Um, and that that form of creative expression is a very valuable one that we should be rewarding. Um, so I, I think I'm really excited about that space specifically. Um, and that's not just making memes. A lot of people think about making memes as curating, which it is because you're taking existing content and like remixing it. But yeah, that's another kind of big space that I'm following. And how do you, going high level, I know you're not an investor, at least to my knowledge, you're not an investor, but like, because, you know, we're both in tech, I feel like you, it's hard to not look at things from an investor angle sometimes. Like, so we kind of, you just mentioned some more categories. Um, when does, I don't, I don't even know if I'm like, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this question. I don't know. I don't think there's an easy answer, but when does something become a category? Like, for example, um, like Patreon was started in 2013, right? And, and yeah. I think Patreon is a cheat, like they paved the way, right? They, they, they paved awesome. the way. I love and, Patreon, yeah. And like only, only now it's like blowing up. Like why now? And like, um, is audio a space yet? Or is it still, is there just Clubhouse just the Patreon and it actually takes off in like five or 10 years? How do you like, how do you think about when a space is a space when creators have been around for a decade, but it's like, not like it is now, you know? Well, that's a very philosophical question. Like, when does a category become a category? I think um, when there's like critical mass, I think when a category becomes a category, it's probably too late <laughs> for you to start a company in that space. Um, and so, you know, if you're starting to think about audio now, it's like, okay, you know, there's quite a few audio companies. Um, so, I mean, I think, yeah, critical mass, when there's like a bunch of companies that are doing stuff around that space, um, and you, you know, become a category, I guess. Um, and yeah, that's sort of how I would define it, I guess, or think about it. I mean, it's kind of like a weird question, but I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, found, there's kind of two types of founders. Um, there's a lot of types of founders, but in this framework, there's two kind of founders. There's like founders that, they're missionaries and mercenaries. It's this very common framework. You got founders that are like, I don't really care what's like going on. I like have a mission, I got, I got a drive. I'm just going to do it and like hunt the market. Right. And like oftentimes if founders are interested in something that in the market catches up with, that really works out. And if not, maybe it still works out, but it's not like a VC, you know, it's not like a VC return, which is fine. And then you got the founders that are like, Oh, like where's the market going? Let's build for it. And I think they're both fine. I have an affinity to the, the missionary style, just like people that like want to build something because they want to build it. Um, but I guess, um, I don't know, it's just like, obviously, I don't know the name of the, 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 the CEO of, of, of Patreon, 
but it's like that guy's a missionary and it's almost like like I don't know if you want to be early to a category you almost can't wait for the category to exist you have to just build what you want to build um you know like what's your experience with um like you, you know in the past or now or whatever whatever you want to share like what have you worked yeah. on in the past that you just were interested in and it kind of like worked out or in the contrary what have you decided to build and you're like yeah the market is not doesn't care it kind of how do you think about that yeah, so um, the CEO of Patreon is someone I really look up to. So Jack, his name's Jack Conti. He's definitely a missionary. Um, and, you know, he started out as a creator. He started out as someone that felt the pain of monetizing your content online and then went about fixing that problem. Um, so I think, you know, for me, um, so I spent my early career at YouTube um, and I worked with a lot of creators and artists at YouTube. And during my time there, you know, a recurring theme was, the pain of the algorithm, how it was the gatekeeper of everything. And, um, you know, I started thinking a lot about uh, curation when I was at YouTube and I was specifically commissioned to build a compilations feature. Um, and basically this idea that you could stitch together videos from across the platform and add commentary to it. And then I think that was the starting point for me, starting to think about, um, you know, there could be a future where we could curate content for each other and are really kind of intuitive, fun, useful way. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm very much a believer in founders that sort of have maybe potentially felt the pain or seen the pain and then became passionate about this mission. Um, you know, for me personally as well, I grew up writing poetry. I'm a very big believer in creative expression, the power of creative expression. For me, poetry was a form of healing during my childhood, you know. Anytime I had issues, I'd write about it. And I ended up actually building a community around my poetry. And I used to write when I was like 12 or 13 and no one kind of, you know, knew I was 12 or 13 at the time. So you know, when, when, when I reflect on myself, I consider creative expression as my anchor. And so um, you know, I would probably fit under the category of like a missionary founder. Um, and I tend to think that works better in consumer internet when the likeliness of things working is just super low anyway. Um, but if there's something that sort of anchors your experience and what you're doing, um, it's just much more compelling. And I like how you said that, because I actually think that you could be a more of like a, a market driven founder in B2B. Because if you could, if you know, if you know, if you know sales and you can build a sales org, you know your customers. I feel like the, like the king of this is, um, Max Lepchkin, I, I, I think he is a missionary. I, I think he's a missionary. He's an exceptional founder, but he just turns them out every like five to seven years just because like he's, he's interested in fintech and within fintech, it's like, great, where's it going? And he, I think that's like a great blend of the two because you can be a missionary founder, but always be wrong. Um, and you kind of want to be like a missionary founder and like ideally be right. Like, like ideally be right market wise. And I think Max Lebchkin is like a great example of someone that's, that's kind of both and does it, well, it does it well. Like, do you know much about Max? I don't know much about him, but what you're reminding me of is um, a kind of this framework of running companies. And it's basically about being a leader as a beacon and a leader as an architect. And, um, you know, what that kind of, what that means um, is, you know, you kind of have to be that inspirational leader that sort of like is the beacon, you know, driving the company and driving everyone to this one goal. But also you have to be detail oriented and kind of architect things internally. And so I think if you think about it from, you know, 
we were talking kind of micro scale running a company, but macro scale founding a company, you know, you need that beacon, that North Star metric, that thing you're driving towards that's sort of anchoring the entire mission, but also architecting things around user feedback and, you know, what you're hearing from investors and where the market's kind of going. Um, and so you kind of need to balance the two, but I think um, the beacon is incredibly important. And if you lose sight of that, I think you're in trouble. Is there an opposite of that? Meaning, so my issue with my last company was like, I think I was like two vision. I was two vision. Like I have, I have no problem with vision. I also have no problem with execution either. Like I, I can do both. Like I, I get shit done, but like the vision can distract me from the execution that's happening. Like the vision of tomorrow can distract me from the execution happening today. How do you think as a founder and as someone who spends time around founders, how do you think about balancing the two and almost like giving me advice? Like as someone that is like, I'm very, I, I, I see the future and I build to it often, often, but I got to keep going long enough to actually get there. How do you find the balance? Yeah, I'd say listening. Um, so, you know, being really cognizant of what's happening around you, whether that's your team, your co-founder, uh, users, experts and advisors and investors who know the space pretty well. I think listening is really, really important, but also being really good at like listening selectively as well. Um, so, you know, um, kind of taking the things that, you know, you think matter and weighing them according to, you know, the things that you'd consider in, uh, you know, taking advice. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's really, really important that you're, continuously keeping your, you know, your ear to the ground and understanding if your vision is materializing day in, day out. Um, what, what's worked for me is I tend to be more big picture. I'm not the most detail oriented, although I try to be. My co-founder is the exact opposite. <laughs> um, and so he grounds me um, and he keeps me on my feet um, and, um, and helps kind of keep, keep, you know, helps to keep the details in place. So I think find someone that sort of is compatible with you. I think that's, that's a really important thing. It's the power of, of co-founders, right? Like you have your superpowers and you have your kryptonite and you got to find someone, architect, what is the person, who is that person that can compliment you? And hopefully you already know them. I think a lot of, like, a lot of people, oh, I want to find a co-founder. Let's go to a certain website or like co-founder dating, et cetera. And I've always been of the mind of just like you, you, it's already so hard. Like doing a startup is already so hard. You should, I, 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 I for me, I would like to know who my co-founder is before we become co-founders. <laughs> um, and I don't, but like do, as that, as, as we go into an internet age and, and, and we, things are changing. I know beyond deck is actually challenging this notion that you do have to know your co-founder. And my thought might be out a little, a little outdated. How do you feel about it? knowing your co-founder versus not. And then I guess second question is like, is there a point, let's say COVID just, let's just say it's just here for years. At what point do we like, is, is finding a co-founder online like accepted or will it ever be accepted? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's this, this program in the UK and I think they spread outside the UK too called Entrepreneur First. Um, and they, their hypothesis is actually the complete antithesis of OnDeck. So they're like, nope, you don't need to know your founder, or your co-founder. You come into this program and you meet them and then you start a company together. Um, and they've done pretty well. I think, you know, you could probably argue that 
you know, knowing your co-founder is better. Um, you know, we have this joke, my co-founder and I, when we're talking to investors, we're like, do you want the real story of how we met or the fake story of how we met? Because the fake story of how we met is that we met on a dating app because we think it's funny. We did not meet on a dating app. Um, we actually met through a newsletter um, and we um, end up meeting in person and then going to a couple of hackathons. We traveled together. We sort of like really, you know, it's kind of like dating in a weird way where you're like finding out what it's like to travel with this person, what it's like to work with this person alongside other people. Um, and then sort of like deciding, okay, committing to that person and saying, we're going to start a company together. Cause, um, you know, I've spoken to a number of founders around co-founder relationships and they say, married founders say that sometimes they spend, you know, it's a deeper relationship than a marriage sometimes uh, with your co-founder. So I think it's incredibly important to test the water. I think it's okay not to know your founder from, you know, birth or from like your school days, but really testing the waters before you commit um, to building something with them permanently. For sure. It's a, it's a good like way to think about it. And, and the beauty about startups is that there, although there are some best practices that like you should, there's some things you should probably do versus not in general, it's kind of like a canvas and there are ways that it's been done, but the market changes all the time. So you can, you can do something totally different and it could work and then everyone's like oh great that can work and then you get that becomes the norm and this i mean like i feel like wise combinator almost did this for for venture capital i mean like in 2005 funding techies like who would do that we fund mbas but then why i see it paul graham's like nope you can fund a techie and you know we'll see we know how that worked out <laughs> exactly i think that sort of goes back to the earlier conversation we had around the unpredictability of cultural markets right like um, I think it extends to, you know, building companies to some degree, you know, there are best practices, there are tried and tested things, um, but divergent thinking is this school of thought, right? You know, thinking against the grain is actually what's going to help you succeed. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for creative, non-standard approaches. It's, I've actually, something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is venture capital and like i don't know if like has there been what yc did to venture capital in 2005 has there been a comparable event to that since then um like like not maybe not as big but has there been some injection of change or something like that that had the change of the magnitude that yc had on the venture industry Whew. um Nothing comes to mind right now, but I think there's a really big awakening happening now with the importance of investing in diverse talent um, and making sure that, you know, invest, you know, venture funding is going to underrepresented and underappreciated, um, you know, founders. And I think that awakening is great. I've heard of founders that are not taking money from, from funds that don't have, you know, a female investor or that aren't necessarily, you know, that haven't invested in female led businesses or minority led businesses. Um, and, you know, I think that that movement is great. I'm not sure if that's necessarily, you know, answering your question specifically, but I think that this movement is really, really inspiring and, um, and a positive trend. I will say 
I, 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 will, I will admit it was a leading question because I, 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 for, I, for, I firmly believe the answer is no. <laughs> like, 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 like there is all this, like, there's all this stuff going on. And, and, and you're not, wait, remind me, you're not based in SF, right? You said you were based in Boston. Yeah, uh, I don't like SF at all. <laughs> um, I'm based in Boston. Okay, so this is something I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about. As I, so as people listening probably know, but maybe not, I, I, in 2017, I started a company called email Jason, many investors, but one of them was G, Jason Calacanis, sent him like 15 emails, not begging him, but just updates on our progress every month. He eventually invested. I kind of like got into the SF area, understood how the game works, and then realized like, wow, that's really interesting that it works like that. And now I'm back in Phoenix, just like thinking about this all the time. Um, and I, um, I'm just curious for you, you say you're, you're I mean, you're based in Boston, you, you don't like SF. Why? Like, wh wh what do you like about Boston? Um, well, I'm just curious, like, what do you like about Boston versus SF? And then wh what's like, why don't you like SF? Yeah, so um, I think before before I explain that, I'll back up real quick and just explain like my story very, very, very quickly. So my mom's Lebanese, my dad's Greek. I grew up in the UAE. I spent my adult life in the UK and moved to the US for business school. So I'm a firm believer that opportunity is, can be anywhere. Um, you know, my, my mom and dad like fled basically Lebanon during the civil war. Um, and I was able to then go to Cambridge and then come to the US and start a company here. I think part of what I'm you know, trying to say is you can, you can, you know, talent is everywhere and you can build something pretty much from anywhere. And I think in today's world with the technology that we have and the movement towards like remote work and all that, um, that's going to make sure that there's an even more even playing field in terms of building companies. Now, um, you know, I was at Google for a while. I, I was not based in SF, but I go to SF a lot. Um, I personally think it's, you know, I'm a very big culture person. Uh, I think it's a relatively vapid place. It's not, you know, it's a very homogeneous place from like um, the people I used to surround myself around um, being in tech. Um, personally, I like Boston a lot because it's an intellectual hub. The people I surround myself around aren't con in consumer internet. There actually are very few consumer internet founders. It tends to be more healthcare and more like hard tech and research and stuff. Um, we're actually probably going to be moving to New York um, next year and being, you know, we're probably gonna be headquartered there. So that might, I might be a hypocrite by saying that we're gonna move there. But, um, but yeah, I think for me, um, I, I'm really excited about this idea of being able to build a company from anywhere and not having to be based out of San Francisco. And I love the fact that you're based out of Phoenix. That's awesome. I've never been, I'd love to visit. Phoenix is actually pretty underrated. Like, I mean, I've been here for 26 years. So like, I, I, I'm used to it. Obviously, I like haven't I like, grew up here and like haven't left. But like, so I feel like some people t see Phoenix as like a flyover state. Like, oh, it's like Arizona or not sorry, Arizona is a flyover state because you know, it kind of is until you kind of like, land here. Then you see all like, the, like the hiking here is incredible. And like people, it snows in Flagstaff, like people don't realize it snows in Arizona, you know, and I just, it's interesting, like, like the fact that because of this podcast, I was kind of able to use it as a vehicle. Um, one of the vehicles to kind of figure out how everything works. 
I'm kind of like, well, if I can do it, like, and I kind of like just took my pickaxe and just kind of like put, like pushed my way in. Like, is there a way that you can do that, you know, for other people and for everyone? Like, this is like, I'm not trying to like go down this path. This is like what I'm working on now. And I'm not, I'm not, it's just like something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I, for the first time in a long time, I get to work on it. And I just was curious to get your thoughts on like Boston, et cetera. I do want to focus back on Boston for a second. Boston's a spot where like, it's actually on our short list. I would say if our short list was five, Boston's on our spot to move to. Like, like, like we're not moving in the next couple of years, but when we do move, it's like LA, Boston, New York, Portland, maybe SF, maybe SF, like depending on how life happens. Um, so like, tell me like Boston, like what's it like for tech there? Like, um, all the smart schools are there. You said it's not a lot of consumer. Can you guys describe what it's like in the Boston tech scene? Sure. Yeah. So I was, I was pretty involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in, in, uh, in Boston, specifically the Harvard ecosystem. And, um, you know, I think it's a, an incredible place for talent. Um, you know, like you said, a lot of the top schools are here. Um, if you're in healthcare, it's like an obvious choice. If you're in hard tech, anything that's research driven, it's definitely an obvious choice. Um, if you're building consumer internet company, it's definitely not an, you know, an obvious choice. Um, you know, we, we, we just raised our first round and um, generally the investor ecosystem around Boston tends to be a little bit more traditional. They, um, you know, I think are better to raise from if you're working, you're working in something in, you know, SaaS or um, enterprise or healthcare. Uh, we end up raising on the West Coast, mainly because what we're building tends to fit in with their kind of school of thought a lot more. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, beyond kind of the tech ecosystem, it's an awesome, awesome city. Um, I'm based in Cambridge specifically. Cambridge is an incredible kind of part of Boston. Um, I, you know, I sometimes base my decisions on where to live or go based on the density of cafes. Um, <laughs> I actually curate cafes. <laughs> um, and uh, the Cambridge area, surprisingly, has some really good cafes. So, um, so I'll give it like additional points for that too. Kind of the same way with coffee shops, which is like pro kind of the same thing. Like it, I, I definitely evaluate cities based on strength of like local coffee shops. Um, like have you, ever, have you ever spent any time in Boulder, Colorado? No, I haven't. I really need to, I, Colorado's on my list. Um, I know Portland, Oregon is amazing for coffee. Um, Seattle is another good one. So they're still on my list. I haven't been, but um, yeah, tell me about Boulder. Well, Boulder, I, I wanted to, it's kind of interesting. I, so I graduated college, um, is it four or what's the, four years ago. So four, about four years ago. And for my graduation present, I think my dad was like, yo, here's a ticket to Boulder, go to Boulder Startup Week. And I, I went to Boulder Startup Week and I fell in love with Boulder immediately. I never just, I was obviously still in Phoenix. I hadn't left. So I fell in love with Boulder like immediately. And on the third day of Startup Week, I'm like, I'm moving here. And I did. I actually like, the, I, I came home from Startup Week and then I, I, I packed my bags that week and I moved. I had no roots here. And like I grabbed, I was, you know, I moved. Um, and in that time, I spent all this time in Boulder on Pearl Street. And on Pearl Street, there is coffee shops everywhere. You got bus, you can listen to buskers as you drink coffee. You can get your casual coffee. There's like beer, like, there's like, like, like places that you can get beer and coffee. Um, and it's just this little downtown section with not big skyscrapers or whatever, just this little like 
kind of petite downtown area where you can walk and watch people light their tongues on fire and stuff like like the street acts and it's just it was incredible unfortunately um i for various reasons didn't move, stay for very long i was there for th- i was there for the summer so i spent the summer there and i needed to move back um for uh for various reasons so i, I, I didn't get to stay there but maybe one day I'll get back to Boulder. And because that also that tech scene is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an incredible place. Um, it's just really sad that like ca- cafes are still closed here in Cambridge. Uh, most, most of them are still closed. I can't work out of cafes. Um, it's causing me a lot of pain. Um, but uh, I want to give a quick shout out as well to the European uh, ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I was living in London for most of my, um, my t- you know, my adult life before moving to Boston. And, you know, the European uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem is just booming right now. I'm like super excited to see companies there, um, you know, growing really quick. Uh, there are m- a number of Silicon Valley based, you know, venture firms that are opening, you know, offices in London now um, and across Europe to invest, you know, in Europe, uh, which I think is a really exciting trend. Um, but it's a very, very different ecosystem. Risk appetites are very different. The general kind of perception of failure is completely different to the U.S. It tends to de- disincentivize people from starting companies because of the fear of failure. There is this big uh, focus on you have to make money. Revenue is everything. Growth isn't that important, which is completely a different school of thought here. It's like growth over everything at the early stages, especially in consumer internet. Uh, for better or for worse. Um, there's just a number of differences, I think, which are, you know, really, really stark between the European ecosystem and here. Um, yeah, so that, I, I think that's also a really interesting thing. So I'm going to run a new type of consumer model by you and get your thoughts on it, because I kind of am in this middle ground of my whole career. I, because I've been in Phoenix, I hadn't like had easy access to capital and I like need to start things with revenue first. I've always been this guy that's just like, great, you have a product, great, like charge for it and like make my, that's just how I've done things. And now um, I'm doing that still, but is there a way to combine consumer products with a low monthly subscription and not have a blow up to be, not have it be like, a billion users but can you do those two words exist in the same sentence consumer product and five dollar a month seven dollar a month ten dollar a month subscription uh totally yeah but i I think there's a difference between what's a venture fundable consumer internet business and you know a really great business that's not necessarily venture fundable you know there's this perception in silicon valley that everything needs vc money and you know you need that in order to build anything successful, but there are many, many examples of really successful internet companies that are making millions, hundreds of millions even, without a single penny of VC funding. Um, and I think that's sort of what you're alluding to. Um, but I think in, in, you know, in building consumer internet products, um, a really important thing is observing how users are using your product and then productizing that. And so it is important in the early stages to sort of like leave enough flexibility and freedom for users to explore, to kind of like, you know, for you, for you to understand what users really want to do with your product before you think about monetizing um, those elements. Um, So that's kind of, you know, another approach um, there as well. 
So it's it's definitely the approach that I think makes the most sense. It's just I always throw myself in situations where I'm like, well, I, I got to make money. <laughs> so I just like, need to, you know, and I don't think like I think it's an interesting mindset because these do lead to great businesses. But it's just kind of goes to show the the type of culture in different geographies. Like, I feel like I'm pretty SF minded. Like I, 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 have, a lot, I have a lot of pop people on the podcast. I like know how the game, but at the same time, I'm not going out with an idea and raising a million dollar seed round to like get started. I'm like building it and I already got revenue and I'm like doing that, but that's like kind of not super SF E. So it's kind of the, the cultures that are built in different geographies are kind of interesting because the king of risk is SF. And I wonder, will anyone ever have that same amount of risk? You know, like do will ever be replicated? Um, I'm not sure. I think we're sort of going into a time right now where people are very focused on, on, you know, profitable businesses, you know, even at the pre-seed, like you have to prove some line of sight to revenue. I think that that's useful in some spaces, but dangerous in others. If you're over indexing on money and monetization and business model and consumer internet platform businesses, um, I think that could be a risk if you're way too focused on the dollars and not on users and the value you're offering them. Um, you know, I think there's, whenever I think of businesses that are purely focused on building something that, you know, is useful and you can monetize, I think of Pinboards, uh, which is a really good like social bookmarking type site, kind of like what Delicious used to be back in the day. If, um, if you or any of your listeners remember it from a while ago. Um, but yeah, Pinboard is like very, very, very low design. Um, it's actually quite ugly. Um, it's a functional product that you have to pay for upfront in order to use. It's like $20, $22 a year. Um, and I think it's one full-time employee working on it. I'm pretty sure he's like just like making enough money to, to do well for himself. Um, it's like 25,000 users or something. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty good business for them, for him. He doesn't have to hire anyone. He's managing it himself. He's support. He's the developer. He's everything. Um, so yeah. It just kind of like, it's like the PR department. Um, it's like the PR department for venture capital is so strong and the PR department for like bootstrapping and, and it, taking different types of capital that isn't venture capital is really bad. I feel like there's just used to be like, a PR department for like these other ways to build companies. Cause you get all these people, including me, like I'm in this category. I'll fully admit it that are like, you want to start a company. It's like, Oh, like venture, like let's, let's make a venture scale, but venture scale venture. I mean, like I don't, I don't have to tell you. And I feel like most of the audience that already knows this too, like very small percentage of companies, not just get funded, but only a small percent should get funded. Like most shouldn't. And, but you don't know this when you're first getting started, you're like, Oh, it's, the idea is great. Like let's raise some money. <laughs> But yeah, and also like raising money is usually seen as the stamp of approval um, and that you've like achieved something. But at the end of the day, it's like you're lighting a fire under you. But also it's really important to actually think about how you can still operate in a very lean fashion and, you know, maintain kind of the practices that you have around efficiency um, before you raise. Because um, I think one of the biggest risks is, you know, overspending and all that. I was, you know, one of my mentors um, runs uh, Dub Smash and he said that, um, you know, whenever, whenever they're starting to kind of reach the end of their, you know, cycle and have to raise again, that's when they are the most 
creative and innovative and then they come up come up with their best features and their best products because they feel you know that pressure um and i think that's really important kind of maintaining that pressure you know even just after you fundraise and i'm trying to do that with uh where we're at now so um so yeah that's just something that i'm trying to remind myself of and like keep myself grounded there that's such an interesting perspective because I feel like I've had the exact opposite experience. Like my first started Publofts, I start I was started in a very irresponsible way. I had no savings. And I, had, I had two credit cards and I just quit my job. I'm like, let's see what I can do. And there's nothing else that could have focused me more other than knowing that like I needed to grow. Like I, this, like at the time I like wanted to get into YC. So that was kind of like the, I mean, it's, First time founder, you're like, oh, that's North Star. Obviously, I've grown a little bit, but it's like, got to grow every week for YC. And we did. Like, we grew every month for like nine months because there was no other option. Because I needed, there was no other option. And that's, that is an interesting perspective that I think I agree with, where it's like, if you are focusing on, on revenue and you don't, have a, you don't have a million bucks in the bank or even like 100K in the bank, it's like your urgency might be a little different. You might focus on some different things. Um, which is kind of interesting to for listeners to think about. To kind of like um, round it out slightly, is there any other topic that you're thinking about or, you know, just something before we end it, anything that's like you, you're pondering uh, that's going on in the world, the markets and technology, et cetera? Oof, um, so much top of mind. I think, um, you know, I think for me, like one thing I'm really thinking about is building um, – you know, ethical platforms and building platforms that are actually going to nurture positive experiences for users. I think, you know, um, a lot of the time, the talk around a lot of these big social platforms and, um, you know, internet platforms today is that they've created really negative spaces online. They haven't sort of, um, you know, you go on there, you're constantly scrolling through your feed, you're comparing yourself to others, you are, you know, you're, if you're a creator or an artist, you're, you know, at the, you know, you have to satisfy the algorithm logic in order to make it. Creative expression is sort of hindered. And so I'm, I'm really trying to think about what, what, it, what does it look like to build a platform and a space that's actually a positive one? That's one in which mental health is improved by using it. It's one where artists and creatives, creatives feel free and like can express openly. Um, and so that's something I'm, I've been deeply thinking about and would love your perspective. I know you've also like thought about this before. Well, yeah, I think about it a lot and I, I definitely don't want to tie it. Like it won't be a pitch or anything, but like the, it's, it's like a, it, it's a change of format of how can you get people connected in a way that they're not currently being connected. And like, Right now, we we have GUIs, we have we we have we have websites that connect us. Right, you got like Eternal that you can go on, and like you have your avatar. You got Clubhouse, you got Slack, you got all these things, and you gotta like be there, right? You're like if you're not there, you're you're not there, and you want to be there, so it's a little exhausting. Um, you're kind of like there, like you, like you can't be there if you're not. You know, I just said that, so like that's kind of the format that has been being built. And I'm kind of interested in the idea of what if you enabled people to, what if you enabled like a community without an interface? Like you don't log in and it's right there. It's just like, it's just 
I don't have the words for it. It's like hard to describe, but ultimately like, what if it was just like, a, I'll just tell you what I'm doing. Like this is literally irrelevant to like what I'm building. I'm not going to like pitch it or all, but it's like for what I'm building, it's a calendar. Like you join, you pay, you pay seven bucks a month. And what you do is you get access to it. All it is is a calendar and you can see this is their interview. You can come to this live. You can do this, or you can go to this clubhouse event, or you could go to this eternal thing. You go to this happy hour, but you can, log like you can choose what you go to and choose the events kind of like a city and i guess kind of what i'm building like building a city so i think to answer your question because like this is this is the, the way that i think things should go um is stop making experiences especially like when the, like I don't know, change the interface a little bit because I think it's exhausting for some people and maybe AR could get involved. Maybe it's VR, like who knows? But for me, like my interest is like, what if you change the interface, but still have the same outcome, which is connecting with people. That's kind of, that's like kind of how I think about it. I, I really, I really appreciate that. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I think it's a design question for sure. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think the interface does need to change. It's around, you know, the question now is like, there's anxiety around, oh, if I'm not there, there's FOMO. Like, I'm going to miss this person speaking in Clubhouse or, you know, my avatar on Eternal is like, I'm not nurturing my city or Animal Crossing or, you know, there's a million things. You know, I was, I was thinking about this today um, with a specific feature we're working on is like, is this going to nurture, is this going to be a positive experience? How is it going to impact the mental health of our users? Um, and I think those sorts of questions need to be brought up early in design because they're not usually the questions you're asking. Um, and a lot of the time, like your target metrics, your North Star metrics, your OKRs, whatever you want to call them, um, they drive you in a direction that's not really one in which you are prioritizing the, you know, creating a positive space for your users. And so... That's something I'm definitely reflecting on. I, I'm really excited to hear more about what you're working on over, over, you know, over the course of the next few months. I think, um, yeah, building a, a platform that's not necessarily a core interface or a hub is also something I'm thinking about, this idea of like it integrating into existing platforms and being a layer um, on stuff rather than necessarily a hub or, or like a website or platform. Well, yeah, because it's just like, I mean, that's that's been like there's options for that you know and i think it's i mean you may know more about this than i do because i don't i don't really know how to think about network effects in like a really honest way i think people think oh network effects but like i actually like can admit like i don't know if i fully understand what they actually are truly when you have them but like i just have this feeling that these are not winner take all markets you can't there's not going to be one community like eternal is not going to take the market neither will clubhouse right and if that's the case that itself is a fractured internet um, because it's, you know, unless you think of it differently, like, like that's the world and you got cities and but like, that's like, that's like, that's just vision stuff that I ponder all the time. <laughs> yeah. I think that's also why vertical social networks are interesting because, you know, you can have a really deep niche interest and that's where you want to spend your time and that's completely fine. Um, and um, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for, you know, spaces built for specific audiences um, where you want to spend your time. You don't feel like you have to spend your time there. Your worth isn't based on how much time you spend anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm definitely with you. 
So we can definitely chat more about what each other are working on offline. That's for if you want to, if you're listening and you're interested, you can you know do some research and find you'll you'll find it find it out somewhere. I'm not, it's not publicly launched yet, so that's why I'm not talking about. It. I know you're trying to keep it on the deal a little bit too. So we'll stop there. Um, is there before? I mean, any like if you, I'll I'll finish with a Tim Ferriss question. This is a question that Tim Ferriss always gives, and I definitely take it from him. If you uh for to, for your sign off, what is one if, if you'd one billboard that you can put in front of every listener that's listening or just anyone in the world, whatever, uh, you know, in a virtual city, what would you put on that billboard? What would be a message that is top of mind for you that you'd want to communicate to people driving past that billboard? Wow. Okay. And I can't really take credit question. for that. That's, that's a good question. Like, uh, it's not my well, question. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Tim Ferriss, I guess. Um, you know, there's a thing that I say, it's a philosophy I subscribe to, um, and it's that you can engineer serendipity for yourself. And I think that you kind of already did, you're doing that now with this conversation. So I think it would just be two words that would say engineer serendipity. It'd be this idea that you can carve out a path for yourself to have valuable interactions and do interesting things and, you know, be in the spaces where those things happen. I think you are doing that with your podcast. Um, and, you know, this conversation very much kind of is what I just said, <laughs> engineering serendipity. This was an unplanned conversation. We literally haven't met before. Um, and so um, I think, yeah, I would just say engineer serendipity and be like all white, uh, black background. Yeah, that's, that's my billboard. All right. I guess for my, yeah, I love that. That's, I have a lot to say on that in a second. Um, uh, but uh, before, for the last question is... Um, if someone wanted to connect with you, where are you, like, are you active on social, Twitter, LinkedIn? Do you have an email? Like, how can people get in touch in whatever way that you um, want them to get in touch with? Yeah, so I have a, um, so you can find me on jad, J-A-D dot me. Um, and my Twitter is jad underscore A-E. Um, and yeah, happy to connect with anyone. I do like, you know, you can book meetings with me. Um, anyone can book meetings with me. Um, and yeah, happy to connect with whoever's, uh, interested you're the second person in the last week that is also part of the underscore club i'm matt underscore sherman so you got your name and yeah yeah you got got a little underscore there it's the underscore club cool well thanks for coming on to the podcast it really does feel like a coffee shop conversation you're just like chatting about whatever comes up and i like it a lot so i want to do more of it so i appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us thank you very much i think it's flattery to call it wisdom but i appreciate it this was a lot of fun and you should definitely do more of these. These are fun.